Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor, luckiest man in the world to be your pastor. God bless you. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 and Cafe Worship this morning. We love you guys. Thank you so much for being a part of worship in Perry, Oklahoma. Pastor Brian Ahern, we love you so much. You uh, were very, very good host to our intern, Wade Harris. Thank you for, uh, for showing him around and, and uh, making him so welcome in Perry. God bless you guys. Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be. Open your Bibles, please. We're starting a new message series this morning entitled The Sovereignty of God. The Sovereignty of God. This is a doctrinal series, and it's going to take us into some pretty deep weeds. Uh, it's going to take us a long way here in the, in the next few weeks. This morning's message is sort of foundational. I want to put some principles in front of you that we will apply uh, for, for the next few weeks. Let's start with some key words. First word I want you to know this morning is the word, say it. Omnipotence, omnipotence. Somebody tell me what the word omnipotence means. It's got two parts, the word omni, that, that prefix always means all, all. Uh, potence has to do with power, so omnipotence means simply, yeah, having all power. Who has all power? Yeah, God and God alone. God is omnipotent. This is foundational. You need to understand this. God has all power in heaven and in earth. Is there anything that God cannot do? Absolutely not. With God, all things are possible because God is omnipotent. Now, the next word is a key word for the series, of course, sovereignty. The word is sovereignty. Now, these words are similar. They're related. Sovereignty also has to do with, with having all power, but it sort of goes beyond that. What's the word sovereignty mean? What is a sovereign? If you just look at the first part, there's sovereign means to rule, to reign. See the word reign inside that word? So sovereignty has power, but also has to do with having the power and the authority. So it, 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 it's a word that, that brings in omnipotence, but also speaks about the freedom, the rule, the authority to reign. So the definition there is ultimate power and authority. So who is sovereign in, in heaven and earth? Who is the sovereign one? It is God. God and God alone has ultimate power and authority. God is the authority. He has the authority to, to command my life and to command your life. God is sovereign. Now, to say these things about God is very, very important. God is omnipotent and God is sovereign. But to say that doesn't necessarily take you to where you need to go. You have to be willing to ask the, the next question, the follow-up question, and that is simply, what does the sovereign God do with his sovereignty? To say that God has all power is one thing, but then you have to answer the question, what does God do with his power? To say that he is sovereign is one thing, but then you have to go the step further and ask, what does the sovereign God do with his sovereignty? If you're like me, uh, all my life I've sort of played that game in my head, man, if I had all power, if I could do anything, what would I do? If I was sovereign, if I could be in charge of everything, what would I do? And, and I would think, what would I do? And, and I would tell you Woodburn, Kentucky would be on the beach. I, I would do that. I'd do that, and you, you could thank me later. I would put us on, uh, on the beach. I would fix it where when you hit the water fountain that their diet Mountain Dew comes up. I, I would do stuff like that. If I had all power, I mean, I would do the things that suit me. I would do the things that would make everything in the world conform to my will as sovereign. So this is the question. God has all this power. God has all sovereignty. What does God do with his sovereignty? 
Now, that may sound like a very simple question, but the way you answer that question will impact every single aspect of your Christian life. It will affect the way you pray. Because if you believe that God has all power and all authority, if God has the first and the final say, then it has everything to do with the way you pray. It has everything to do with the way you look at life when you believe that everything, everything somehow is related to a God with ultimate power and authority. It has everything to do with the way you witness to people that don't know Christ. The, the idea of God's sovereignty is foundational, and I want us to stop and talk about it and ask the very, very difficult question, what does God do with his sovereignty? With that, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. This truly is the answer to the question, although it's not something that many people think about. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look, uh, start at verse 5. This is an ancient hymn, the Christ hymn, they call it. Listen. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that, say it, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is he sovereign? What does it mean to say that God is in control? Gregory Boyd preached a sermon once about passion, about having passion for Christ and passion for life. He, he preached about passion. Jesus says he comes to give us abundant life. And Gregory Boyd was talking about that abundant life, that life of passion and abundance. At the end of a sermon, a middle-aged woman named Melanie came to him, and she said, Pastor Greg, I want that. I want that back. Because there was a time in my life, Melanie said, when I was just one very fired-up Christian, I, I loved church and I loved to read my Bible, but, but that's just not where I am now. I, I want that passion back. And Pastor Greg said, well, Melanie, just tell me, when did you lose it? Was there a turning point for you spiritually? Can you sort of put your finger on the, the moment when things changed for you? She said, yeah, um, my husband and I, we lost a baby. Pastor Greg said, well, talk about that. Tell me about that. She said, my husband and I were never, ever able to get pregnant. We, 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 we couldn't conceive, and the, and the doctor told us that medically it would be impossible for me to ever get pregnant. But we believed God, and so we, we prayed and we asked God, and we, and we prayed for years that God would allow us to be parents, that God would give us a child, because the only way that we could ever have a child is if God would give us a child. And she said, it seemed like a miracle. 
I got pregnant. Melanie said that, that their prayers were answered and she, and she got pregnant. It was late in life and it, it was medically impossible, a miracle. And, and so she was pregnant and they were praising God and, and they had a shower and they built a nursery in the house and, and they got all ready for the baby. And, and it was a textbook pregnancy, no problems, not, not a single moment of problems. But in delivery, Melanie said, in delivery, the umbilical cord was wrapped around the baby's neck, and the baby died in childbirth. Melanie said it was the hardest thing in the world to go back home and look at that nursery and know that she would never, ever have a baby to put in that bed. They had diapers already in the house. And the only thing they had left was the giant question, why? Why? And for Melanie, the question was very, very difficult. It was not just why would, would God take our baby. It was why would God give us a baby in the first place? Why would God give us this miracle? Why would God allow us the hope of carrying a baby for nine months only to lose it in childbirth? Why? Money said the only place she had to take her question was church because for her, church had always been a place of comfort and a place of safety and security. It was a place where questions got answered. So she took her question back to church and was just begging to know why. Why? Why would God do this? Why would God give us the miracle, allow us to hope, and snatch it out of our arms? Why? Now, being church people, you all know the answers that she heard at church. It's the kind of answers that you and I would probably give. People told Melanie, Melanie, it just must not be God's will that you ever have children. People would say that. I guess it's just not God's will for you that you would have children. Other people said, Melanie, there must be something God's trying to teach you. God wants to teach you something in this. Other people would say things like, God must have wanted another angel in heaven. Melanie said that all of her life, those questions, those answers probably would have been satisfying, but when it was her, when it was her pain, when it was her asking why, those questions did not satisfy. She simply could not believe that, that God would strangle her baby to teach her a lesson and then not really ever tell her what the lesson is because she was begging to know what the lesson would be. Would God, she say, actually strangle my baby to teach me a lesson? God wants another angel for heaven? I mean, Melanie was smart enough to know that's not where angels come from. We don't die and become angels. So that doesn't even make sense, you understand? But to be told that God wanted an angel, God wanted that baby worse than you did. What? It just simply, simply could not make sense to her that God would somehow give her that baby and then strangle it and take it away from her just so that she would know forever that he never wanted her to have children. Do you really think that's how God works? But it's difficult for us. 
It's difficult because as I say, we all affirm that God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Nothing is impossible for him. We all know that. And there's nothing that he can't do. And we never doubt what God could possibly do. God is all-powerful. And none of us in this room question God's sovereignty. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he has ultimate power and ultimate authority. What God says is what happens. God is God. We know this. And this is what takes us into that sort of logical, difficult place. Because the line of thinking goes like this. God is sovereign. God has all power. So therefore, since God has ultimate power, God must have ultimate control. God is in control. That's what we all say. So God has ultimate power. Therefore, God has ultimate control. Therefore, everything that happens must be what God wanted to happen. Because remember, God has ultimate power and authority, and God is in control. So if God is in control, everything that happens, God must have chosen. God must have willed it. It was God's will, that's what we would say. So if everything that happens, God wills, that means God must will all of the misery and suffering and evil and sin in the universe. That's the logic. Now, if that sounds extreme to you, you don't listen to the way we talk. And if that sounds somehow absurd to you, you don't understand that that's exactly what a whole lot of Christians believe. That if God is in ultimate control, then therefore God must be somehow directly or indirectly behind all the misery, all the suffering, all the evil, all the sin of the world. I refuse to believe that. I refuse to believe that because that's not the God that I see in Scripture. Now understand, there's a logic to what I just went through. There's a logic to God has all power, therefore God must have ultimate control. And if God has ultimate control, then therefore everything that happens, God must have willed. And, and if God wills everything, that means God must will evil and suffering and misery. You understand, that's logical. But when God wanted us to know him, when God chose in his sovereignty to reveal himself to us, I, I'm thanking him that he did not give us a logical progression. God did not reveal himself, his heart to us, by means of logic. He didn't trust logic in order to reveal himself. Do you understand that? God did not give us, and I thank him, he did not give us a theological system or a philosophy. He did not give us a book. He did not give us a special teacher. When God wanted us to know him, when God wanted to reveal himself and his sovereignty and his power, God chose to send us Jesus. Understand? God gives us Jesus. So if we want to know God, we look at Jesus. If we want to understand God's power, God's sovereignty, we look to Jesus. Are you with me? Jesus is the revelation of God to us. This is foundational to the Christian faith. In John chapter 14, when Jesus was speaking to Philip, Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip. Don't you understand, anybody who has seen me has what? 
seen the Father. So God looks like Jesus. Do you understand? God looks like Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the, 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 visible, the visible image of an invisible God. So when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. And so when God wanted us to know him and understand him, God sends Jesus. So if we want to know about God's sovereignty, if we want to understand how that works in the world, then we look to Jesus. There's a basic principle I want you to understand. Everything we say about God must ring true with everything we know about Jesus. You with me? Everything we say about God must ring true with everything we know about Jesus. Now back to Melanie for a moment. And all of those things that the pastor and the church people said to her, with good hearts trying to comfort her. With everything we know about Jesus, could you say that Jesus would strangle that baby in order to teach the parents a lesson? I can't say that. Jesus is the one who said, let the little children come to me. And if anyone were to cause harm to any one of them, it would be better for them that a millstone be tied around their neck and throw them in the sea. Isn't that what Jesus said? Would Jesus try to teach a lesson in that way? No, Jesus gathered people together and, and, and he spoke. He, he told them, he communicated plainly. Would Jesus try to show her once and for all that she's never supposed to have children by giving her the hope and then snatching it away? That doesn't ring true with everything we know about Jesus. Whatever you believe, whatever you say about God, it has to ring true with everything that God shows us in Jesus because God looks like Jesus. So, if we're going to somehow talk about sovereignty and power, because we know that God is sovereign, and we know that he's all-powerful. If we're going to talk about that, then we've got to go back to Jesus. If we want to understand how sovereignty looks in the world, then we go back to Jesus, the sovereign God made flesh, and we look to see what Jesus does with his sovereignty. You with me now? So back to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6, start with me. Jesus Though he was in the very nature of God, the scripture says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a, as a man, as a human being, and when he appeared as a man, he humbled himself in obedience to God and, and died a criminal's death on a cross. What does Jesus do with his sovereignty? What does Jesus do with his power? It's amazing. It's not logical. God reveals himself to us in this way. And if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. And if you want to know what God's sovereignty looks like, you look at Jesus. And what does Jesus do with his omnipotence? What does Jesus do with his sovereignty? He was in the very nature of God. Jesus from all eternity was God. You know that, right? 
But Jesus does an amazing thing. Jesus, the actual Greek word there means to pour out. Jesus emptied himself of everything that had to do with, with his divinity. He emptied himself of his sovereignty. He sets that aside. He emptied himself of all of his power. He emptied himself to the point where he's born as a human being, a puny little human being, just like you and me. He sets it aside. And he doesn't just set it aside. You understand this? It's not just that God from eternity, he, he sets that aside and, and becomes Jesus. He, he doesn't just set his, his, his sovereignty aside. He sets it aside and becomes a man. He, he becomes a human being. But he doesn't just become a human being. He takes the lowest position. He becomes a servant, the scripture says. You understand? He doesn't just do this part way. He empties himself. He goes to the lowest place. He takes the form of a servant. But he doesn't even just take the lowest place. He serves to the very point of death. Understand? He doesn't just serve us to a degree. He serves to the very point of death, obedient, submissive, to the point of death. And not just death, death on a cross. And not just death on a cross. You understand? That's death at our hands. You've just got to let that sink in. That the sovereign God, the omnipotent God, he emptied himself of all of that. He put all of that at risk. And what happens? He puts himself in the position where those of us, puny human beings, creatures that he made, creatures of dust, he puts himself in the position where we can not only refuse him and his power and his sovereignty, not only can we refuse him, we could kill him. And that's what we did. That's what happened. The sovereign God, the all-powerful God, set all of that aside to the point where people like you and me, we could say no to him. We could refuse him. We could nail him to a cross. And that's what we did. What does God do with his sovereignty? Shockingly, mysteriously. Amazingly, he sets it aside. Why would he do that? If you're the sovereign of the universe, why would you give that up? What could be more important than glorifying yourself? What could be more important than exercising control? If you have all might and all power, and if you have all authority, what possibly would make you want to set that aside? Scripture says in many, many places, but in one place, Romans chapter 5, it says, God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe there's something more important to God than his own sovereignty. Maybe there's something more important to God than his own glory. Maybe there's something more important to God than his own might. Maybe the most important thing to God 
is to demonstrate his love for you and me. Why does he do all of this? Why would he set his sovereignty aside? My friend, he sets that aside for the sake of saving us. The most important thing to God is saving us. Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He does everything to save us. Make a couple of very important points, and I want these to sink in. First, Christ is all-powerful, but he doesn't exercise all his power. He's all-powerful, but he doesn't exercise all of his power. He's, he's drawn this line past which he rarely crosses. He, he doesn't exercise all of his power. Why does he do that? Well, why would there be a limit? It's self-imposed. He's God. But why would there be a limit to what God will do? Why would there be a limit to the power that Christ exercises? Well, very, very simply, he, he does it for the sake of our freedom. Christ is all-powerful, absolutely, but he doesn't exercise all of his power because he gives some choices to you and me. And not just you and me, if you read scripture, there are, there are, are angels or spiritual beings in the heavens, things we can't even see. And those beings also have a kind of free will. They have freedom. And if there's freedom, it's real and it's radical. That's what the scriptures teach. And if it's real and radical, that means that, that our option is to, to, to praise God, to love him, to accept his offer of salvation, to, to return his love for us. Or, or also, horribly, we have the freedom to refuse him. We have the freedom to crucify him. Jesus does that for us. He doesn't exercise all of his power for the sake of saving us. Understand? I mean, look where the scripture goes. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. He appeared in human form, and he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, first, notice right there, the glory of God the Father. That's the last phrase of this entire hymn. And what is the glory of God the Father? What is it that reflects his glory? It's the action of the son, this self-sacrificing submission, this emptying of himself of everything that had to do with sovereignty of power, this, this laying down his life for the sake of sinners. This is the glory of God, the love of God, the self-sacrificing love of God is the glory of God. This is what the scriptures teach. But on top of that, look at the end. Look at what God wants for every knee to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Understand, every tongue should proclaim that he's Lord because he is Lord. And every knee should bow before him because that's right. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He is the authority. We bow before him. And Jesus has the power to crush us to the ground before him. He wouldn't have to ask us. He wouldn't have to beg. He could crush us to the ground. He could wedge the words out of our mouths if he chose to. He has that power. He does not exercise all that power. Because that's not what love does. He could crush us to the ground with his might. But that's not what God wants. 
He could make the choice for us, but that's not what God wants. He could pull the words from your mouth, but that's meaningless. He wants you to bow by choice. He wants you to proclaim him by your choice. He doesn't exercise all of his power because he set us free for the sake of saving us. Next point. The sovereign Christ does not aim to control us by his might. He aims to save us by his love. He has the right to command and the right of authority over all of the universe. He does not use that control. He does not use that strength to work us like puppets on strings. Instead, he aims to save us by his love. He sets us free. We can refuse him. You can say no to him. It's unthinkable. It's unfathomable. That's what God has done. This is how he uses his sovereignty. This last statement will sound shocking to you. I think it's biblical. Look at what the scriptures say. So that you will be free to surrender to him, the sovereign Christ surrenders first. So that you will be free to surrender to him, the sovereign Christ surrenders first. We're talking about Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, in all of his sovereignty, in all of his power, he empties himself of that. He sets that aside. He slips down the back stairs of heaven he comes to you and me, and he stands at the door and knocks. Do you hear me? The sovereign God stands at the door and knocks. He's the creator of your heart. He's the creator of the world. He has the right to barge right in. He won't. For the sake of saving you, for the sake of having you surrender to him, he surrenders first. That means that the God of all power, the God of the universe, he puts himself in the situation where any one of us, you or me, we can refuse him. And yet, he stands at the door and knocks. The message of the gospel is that you and I now, because of what God has done for us, we have a choice. We, we have freedom to choose and therefore a responsibility to choose. All through the ages, many have chosen to refuse him. At one point, they nailed him to a cross. They, they killed him. We would have done the same thing. We in the hardness of our hearts, we refuse him. That's the risk he's taken with his sovereignty. He does it for the sake of saving us. So pray with me. God, we are not able to think your thoughts. 
we are not able to think our way to you. And logic doesn't lead us to the truth. Jesus himself proclaimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, all of us who seek to know truth, we must seek Christ. Lord, we confess that often we have a hard time looking at the face of Christ. He, he, he shocks us. He surprises us. He never seems to do or say what we expect him to do or say. And the last thing we expected the sovereign God to do was to set all of that aside. We never expected, God, that in all of your power, you would choose not to exercise your power. Instead, you would seek to persuade us by your love. We didn't expect that. We can hardly imagine that you, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who puts breath in our lungs, we would hardly imagine that you would give us the freedom with that same breath either to praise or curse you. We never imagined that the God with all authority in heaven and earth would give us the freedom to say yes or no. But Jesus, this is exactly what you have done for us. This is exactly what you show us of God. So help us, Jesus, to seek to know you that we may see the face of the Father and understand what it means to serve a God who is omnipotent and sovereign. God, there are many in this house who continue to refuse you as you stand at the door of their heart and knock. I pray, Lord Jesus, that by the omnipotent power of your love, every heart in this place will swing open to you. We pray these things. In the name of Jesus, the humble servant, the Lord and Savior of all.